From New York, this is Democracy Now! The court should have a code of conduct with clear and enforceable rules so both justices and the American people know when conduct crosses the line. Calls are growing for Supreme Court justices to have a code of ethics following recent disclosures about the secretive financial dealings of Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and the wife of Chief Justice John Roberts. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing Tuesday, but Roberts refused to testify. We'll get the latest. Then to the growing debate in Washington over raising the debt ceiling. Over 200 years... America has never, ever, ever failed to pay its debt. To put in the capital and colloquial terms, America is not a deadbeat nation. We'll speak to the economist James K. Galbraith. He says the debate over the debt ceiling is a ruse and a trap, but it could have dangerous consequences if Republicans push through sweeping spending cuts. And in Texas, authorities have caught a man accused of using an AR-15 to shoot dead five of his neighbors, including a nine-year-old boy. Instead of calling for gun reform, Texas Governor Greg Abbott dehumanized the victims by referring to the dead as illegal immigrants. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Sudan, warring parties have agreed to a new seven-day ceasefire set to start Thursday. South Sudan, which is acting as a mediator, said Sudan's ruling army and the paramilitary rapid support forces would also appoint envoys for peace talks. But air raids and shooting continued in Khartoum, and fierce battles are raging in Darfur, leading to mass displacement. The death toll from the 19-day-old conflict has reached at least 550 people, with another 5,000 injured. Meanwhile, the World Food Program warning the crisis in Sudan could lead to a wider disaster in the region as tens of thousands of people flee Sudan. The ripple effect for the region is significant. It's a real concern, and we just need to find peace. We need the two parties to the conflict to come together and find a way to resolve the conflict, because this has the possibility of destabilizing the whole region. President Biden's ordered the deployment of 1,500 Army and Marine Corps soldiers to the U.S.-Mexico border for 90 days, for starters, as the U.S. prepares to lift the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy May 11th. For the last three years, the measure has been used to quickly expel over 2.7 million migrants at the southern border without due process. There's already 2,500 National Guard troops stationed at the U.S.-Mexico border, as the Biden administration has routinely cracked down on asylum. Seekers. Biden officials on Tuesday also reached a deal with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, allowing the U.S. to continue to deport non-Mexican migrants across the border into Mexico. Biden's latest move was widely condemned by immigrant rights advocates, who've called out his enforcement of asylum bans and anti-immigrant policies similar to Trump's. In related news, Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott has resumed sending buses of asylum seekers to New York. This, according to Mayor Eric Adams, it's been months since New York City last received buses of asylum seekers after thousands of people started arriving almost daily since the fall. 
In Minnesota, a judge found former Minneapolis police officer Tutau guilty of aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter in the May 25, 2020, police murder of George Floyd, which set off nationwide protests against racism. Judge Peter Cahill said Tau, quote, made a conscious decision to actively participate in Floyd's death when he held back bystanders, encouraged his fellow officers as they violently pinned Floyd down as the life from his body and blocked him from receiving medical aid. All four former officers involved in Floyd's murder have been convicted on both state and federal charges. Tao could receive 41 to 57 months in prison when he's sentenced in August. Israeli forces and various armed factions in Gaza have agreed to a ceasefire after Israeli airstrikes rained down on the besieged Gaza Strip following rocket launches from Gaza in response to the death of the Palestinian hunger striker Hadar Adnan while in an Israeli prison. Israel claimed it only targeted military sites, but Gazans rocked by the air raids said civilian areas were hit. As you can see, the situation is very bad. There are airstrikes and people are scared. We are shop owners and all shops are closed. The whole country is closed. I usually leave at midnight, but today we closed our shops around 9 or 8 as a result of the tension in the country. The Ugandan parliament Tuesday passed a altered version of its bill targeting LGBTQ people after the president, Museveni, requested several tweaks. It remains one of the most draconian anti-LGBTQ bills in the world and includes the death penalty in certain cases and a 20-year sentence for the so-called promotion of homosexuality. Back in the United States, House Democrats have put in motion a process they hope will force an increase to the debt ceiling by allowing a majority of lawmakers to bring a bill to the floor without the approval of Republican leadership. Democrats hatched the plan in January in case of a stalemate in talks, as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other Republicans continue to demand spending cuts before agreeing to raise the debt limit, something President Biden and Democrats have refused to consider. The Democratic strategy, known as a discharge petition, would require at least five Republicans to back it. If the debt limit is not increased, the government could default on its debts as soon as June 1st. Meanwhile, the New York Times is reporting White House officials are debating a legal theory on the constitutionality of the debt ceiling itself, though it's not known whether Biden would support such a challenge. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a contentious hearing on ethics standards for Supreme Court justices following a series of revelations around conservative justices' financial entanglements. This is Rhode Island Democrat Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. The Supreme Court is playing out of bounds of the ethics rules for federal judges. Justices read the ethics rules in unique and eccentric ways, and when they're caught out of bounds, they refuse to allow any investigation of the facts. Ranking Republican Senator Lindsey Graham accused Democrats of selective outrage and going after the court due to its conservative supermajority. No justices were at the hearing after Chief Justice John Roberts declined committee chair Dick Durbin's invitation to testify last week. We'll have more on this story after headlines. A U.N. human rights panel is urging the United States to immediately release long-term Guantanamo Bay prisoner Abu Zubaydah, warning the systemic detention of people at the military prison may constitute crimes against humanity. 
The U.N. Working Group on Arbitrary Detention released its findings Friday after reviewing several Guantanamo cases over the past 15 years. The panel's report also condemned Afghanistan, Thailand, Poland, Morocco and Lithuania, where Zubeda was held at several CIA black sites before being transferred to Guantanamo for being, quote, <clears throat> jointly responsible for the torture and cruel and human or degrading treatment of Mr. Zubaydah. Unquote. Zubaydah was first taken into custody in 2002 in Pakistan and has been held at Guantanamo without charge since 2006. He was waterboarded over 80 times by the CIA. Texas authorities have arrested the suspect in last week's mass shooting in the town of Cleveland, which killed five people, including a nine-year-old boy. Francisco Oropesa is accused of going on the shooting spree against his neighbors after they asked him to stop firing his rifle because it was keeping a one-month-old baby awake. Meanwhile, a 14-year-old student opened fire at his school in Belgrade, Serbia, killing eight children and a security guard in a rare mass shooting in the Balkan nation. Back in the United States, in voting news, North Carolina's Supreme Court has thrown out a ruling rejecting heavily gerrymandered voting maps. The newly Republican-controlled court also overturned a previous state Supreme Court ruling that struck down North Carolina's photo voter ID law as racially motivated. Friday's rulings are likely to give Republicans more seats in the U.S. House of Representatives after North Carolina's Republican-controlled state legislature redraws congressional boundaries for the 2024 elections. In Florida, a voter suppression law passed by the Republican-controlled legislature Friday creates new barriers to voter registration drives, adds new restrictions to mail-in ballots, and expands the power of the newly formed Office of Election Crimes and Security to investigate and prosecute alleged voting crimes. Florida lawmakers approved the legislation a day after a federal appeals court upheld another Republican-backed voter suppression law in Florida, overturning a lower court ruling that found the legislation intentionally discriminated against black voters. Meanwhile, an amendment to the latest voter suppression bill allows Republican Governor Ron DeSantis to run for president without resigning his post as governor. DeSantis has not yet announced he's running, though he's expected to. In Texas, the state Senate passed a bill Tuesday that would give the secretary of state, appointed by Republican Governor Greg Abbott, the authority to throw out elections in Harris County, a county largely run by Democrats and the third most populous county in the United States. The authority would kick in if 2 percent of polling locations run out of ballot paper for at least an hour. The bill comes as a response to Republican candidates who claim they lost their races after a small number of polling stations ran out of ballots in 2022. Vermont has become the first state in the nation to extend medically-assisted suicide protections to terminally ill people who travel from out of state to end their lives. Republican Governor Phil Scott signed the bill into law, removing the residency requirement from Vermont's decades-old assisted suicide statute. 
Here are New York housing advocates took over a public meeting discussing rent hikes on one million rent-stabilized apartments. Activists rallied ahead of the meeting, and protesters took to the stage where members of the Rent Guidelines Board were seated to draw attention to the dire situation of many renters in New York. Tenant rights groups are calling for rent freezes or decreases, saying housing and other costs of living are already squeezing New Yorkers and that any new increase could result in homelessness or other critical situations. A number of council members spoke on behalf of their constituents. This is Chiose, who represents Bedford-Stuyvesant and North Crown Heights in Brooklyn. A preliminary vote at yesterday's hearing approved a rank increase of 2 to 7 percent on stabilized units. And another news from New York, late-night shows went dark last night, airing reruns as the first picket line of the Writers Guild of America strike formed Tuesday in front of the offices of Peacock, NBC Universal streaming service. Democracy Now! spoke to some of the strikers. These corporations are making billions of dollars off of our work, and we have members who can't even afford health care because they are making less than 30000 a year. So all we're asking for is a fair amount so that we can all eat. Everything that we asked for, the $426 million, could be paid with David Zaslav's salary and Ari Emanuel's salary and still leave them with $63 million each. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show looking at the growing corruption scandal on the Supreme Court. On Tuesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on Supreme Court ethics reform following recent revelations about conservative Justice Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Chief Justice John Roberts. Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin had invited Roberts to testify, but the Chief Justice declined the invitation. Democratic lawmakers have intensified their push to pass a Supreme Court ethics bill after ProPublica revealed Clarence Thomas had failed to report frequent luxury trips paid for for by the Republican billionaire Harlan Crow. For more than two decades, Thomas frequently joined Crow aboard his private yacht, jet, and at his private estates. Thomas also failed to disclose that he had sold property to Crow, including a home where Thomas's mother now lives rent-free. Meanwhile, Politico has revealed Justice Neil Gorsuch sold 40 acres of property just days after his Senate confirmation to the head of one of the nation's largest law firms, which has since had 22 cases before the Supreme Court. And Business Insider reports the wife of Chief Justice John Roberts has been paid over $10 million as a job recruiter for placing lawyers at elite law firms, including some that have had cases before the court. There are also questions about the finances of Clarence Thomas's wife, the right-wing activist Ginny Thomas. Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin opened Tuesday's hearing by talking about Justice Thomas. Last month, we learned about a justice who, for years, has accepted lavish trips and real estate purchases worth hundreds of thousands of dollars from a billionaire with interest before the court. That justice failed to disclose these gifts and has faced no apparent consequences under the court's ethics principles. That justice claims that lengthy cruises aboard a luxury yacht are personal hospitality 
and are exempt under current ethical standards from even being reported. The fact that a Texas billionaire paid more than $100,000 for Justice's mother's home also seems to be an acceptable example because the justice insists that he lost money in the transaction. How low can the court go? Joining us in Arlington, Virginia, is Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, author of the book The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. Ian, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't we just go through one scandal after another and the mm -hmm. fact that the chief justice, who is also uh, being looked at for his wife's $10 million that she made uh, headhunting for law firms, many of them that have argued before the Supreme Court, uh, go through each of them and the fact that uh, Chief Justice Roberts refused to testify. Sure. So, you know, the biggest scandal here, I mean, the, the one that really should crystallize the mind is what's going on with Clarence Thomas. You know, this guy has accepted tens of thousands of dollars, up by now hundreds of thousands of dollars of gifts from a politically connected Republican donor for more than two decades. We have known about this for a long time. I mean, the earliest reporting I found about Thomas accepting gifts from Harlan Crow was a 2004 report in the LA Times about him accepting a $19,000 Bible. So this is not acceptable. No employee of the federal government that I'm aware of is allowed to accept these kinds of gifts. If Thomas was in the House, if he was in the Senate, if he was in the, the, the White House, if he was anywhere else in government, this would not be allowed. Um, if he was a lower court judge, this would not be allowed. And frankly, he should resign over this. The other scandals, I think, show that the court is being very dumb by not having an ethics code. So if you look at what happened with Neil Gorsuch, Gorsuch sold a plot of land. He sold the plot of land to someone who is a lawyer that runs a law firm that practices in front of the Supreme Court. If the court had an ethics code, there's a way to do that transaction in a way that's above board. You'd want an outside regulator or someone to look at the transaction, make sure it was at arm's length, make sure it was fair market value, make sure that the buyer didn't know who the seller was, the seller didn't know who the buyer was. There, there, you know, there are ways that you can set up an ethics code so that justices can go about their business. But because they don't have an ethics code, you don't know whether they're doing things in an above board way. You don't know, you know, they have no way to defend themselves when they get caught doing something like this. And suddenly, you know, I, the Roberts and Gorsuch incidents, I think, are much less serious than what happened with Clarence Thomas. But every scandal starts to look egregious, like what you have with, with Justice Thomas. And explain also with Chief Justice himself and how, obviously, he's personally profiting because Jane Roberts is his wife, but the significance of this $10 million, actually, more right. than that. Yeah, so Jane Roberts works as a legal recruiter. She works as a, apparently a very high-level legal recruiter who helps um, firms that want to hire a lawyer find you know good lawyers, you know probably very specialized lawyers that that they can hire. And she's made a lot of money doing this, you know, more than ten million dollars over the last several years. Again, this is why the court needs an ethics code. I, I, I mean, you can imagine a situation where 
you know, if you had a law firm that was hiring a mergers and acquisitions partner, law firms do this work all the time where, you know, there's one thing going on in one part of the firm that could create a conflict of interest relating to another part of the firm. And so you wall that off. If the Supreme Court had an ethics code, they could put in rules in place to make sure that the justices' spouses can have their careers, but they are walled off in ways that do not impact the justices themselves. But the court doesn't have an ethics code. So again, first of all, we have no way of knowing what's going on here. Second of all, you know, there don't there aren't any formal checks in place to make sure that Jane Roberts's work isn't influencing what John Roberts does. And third, you know, because Roberts can't point to any kind of code that he has followed, there is no way for him to defend himself when something like this arises. And then back to um, Clarence Thomas and his Mm -hmm. wife, Ginny. Um, How is it possible that he doesn't recuse himself on, for example, an insurrection ruling when she's so been deeply implicated, everything from text messages with Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, pushing states to overturn their elections? Yeah, I mean, the thing with Clarence Thomas, he, he just doesn't think the rules apply to him. I mean, that, that's been true. If you look at his rulings, you, you know, he doesn't believe in following precedent. He is perfectly fine with sweeping aside 80 years of law if he, if he likes the way that it was done in 1918 better. He doesn't think the rules apply to him. He doesn't think the ethics rules apply to him. And, and the court has said fairly consistently that it's uh, it's up to each justice to decide when they want to recuse. Um, you know, the court has said that because they say they don't want the other eight justices to remove other justices from cases, and that could change change the outcomes. But again, the alternative is that you have Clarence Thomas ruling on all these cases where he or his family presents a fairly clear conflict of interest. And nothing can be done about it because the only way to discipline a justice is through impeachment. And that requires 67 votes in the Senate. That requires 16 Republican senators to vote to remove Clarence Thomas from office. And, you know, that's just not happening. Republicans have rallied behind Thomas. I want to go to Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas defending Clarence Thomas's actions. Well, if that's the standard, going and traveling and being paid for by others, then guess what? Just about every Supreme Court justice has done so, and done so in much greater numbers. Justice Thomas was appointed in 1991, and the time since then, he's taken 109 reported trips, five international trips. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was appointed in 1993, two years later. and the time she was on the court, she took 157 trips including 28 international trips. Mr. Payne, yes or no, do you think Ruth Bader Ginsburg was corrupt? No. Nor do I. That clip ended with Ted Cruz questioning Kedrick Payne of the Campaign Legal Center, who testified at Tuesday's hearing. Talk about the significance of this. And then, I mean— what kind of ethics code you think should be put in place for the Supreme Court? Aren't federal judges now extremely angry around the country? They have much stricter rules. Right. 
Yeah, well, to, to respond directly to Ted Cruz, the standard is not that you can't get reimbursed when you travel somewhere. You know, if, if a university wants to bring Justice Ginsburg or Justice Thomas, for that matter, to give a talk at that university, they're allowed to pay for the justice's flight and hotel room. That's, you know, that's just a reimbursement. So the justice isn't left to pay for a trip when they're doing a favor for another institution. That's fine. What happened with Clarence Thomas isn't that he is going to a university, giving a speech and getting his plane ticket paid for. What happened with Clarence Thomas is that he went on a lavish vacation to Indonesia, where he was flied on the private plane of a billionaire, you know, of a very politically connected billionaire. And then he took his vacation on the billionaire's super yacht. And, you know, if, if Ted Cruz can't tell the difference between being reimbursed for a work trip and having a lavish vacation paid for by this billionaire, I, I mean, I, I don't even know how we can have a conversation with someone who who, 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 who doesn't understand the distinction between those two things. And finally, as I mentioned, federal judges, um, what kind of restrictions they have to abide by. I also wanted to ask you, uh, speaking of the appointment of judges, uh, about the growing calls for Senator Dianne Feinstein, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, to resign. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently said, quote, her refusal to either retire or show up is causing great harm to the judiciary, precisely where re uh, reproductive rights are getting stripped. That failure means means now, in this precious window, Dems can only pass GOP-approved nominees. Talk yeah. about what's going on. I mean, we're not just talking about shingles here. Right. Yeah. I mean, Dianne Feinstein is probably in the final years, you know, not even the final years, possibly, possibly in the final weeks or months of her life. She is ill, and her illness seems to prevent her from doing her job. And the concern is that, first of all, because she's on the Judiciary Committee, her vote is needed to vote nominees out of the Judiciary Committee. There is a process, I believe, to discharge a nominee who d does not get a Judiciary Committee vote, but it's very time consuming. It also means that on the floor, you know, with that 51st senator there, Democrats need either Kirsten Sinema or Joe Manchin to vote for something if they want to pass a bill, if they want to confirm a nominee. Without Dianne Feinstein, they need both Sinema and Manchin. So they have, they have to appease these two rather conservative members of this caucus who have idiosyncratic views. You know, Sinema tends to disagree with the Democratic caucus in different ways than Manchin. And so it's not always easy, easy to wrangle both of them. Um, so it's, you know, it's a serious problem that there's this seat that is essentially vacant right now. It's the California seat. It's the most populous state in the uh, in the union. And it only has half as many senators as, as it should right now. You know, I mean, I think that the calls for Dianne Feinstein to resign are well founded at this point. You, you know, she has had a, a, a tremendous career. But the most important thing isn't that Dianne Feinstein gets to die knowing that she died a senator, the most important thing is that the people of California have representation. Um, finally, what rules should be put in place, Ian, for the Supreme Court? So the rules would have to be really 
some of the rules would have to be really complicated. I mean, some of them would be very simple. I think a simple rule, you know, you could do something like what the House of Representatives does, which says that if you accept a gift of more than $250, first of all, it would need to come from a personal friend or something like that. And second of all, some sort of body needs to review it to make sure that, you know, the the, the gift isn't in, in, in some way corrupting. And then you're going to have to have, you know, where it gets complex is you have to have serious conversations about, OK, what if the justice has a spouse with their own career? How do we make sure that the that the justice's work is walled off from their spouse so that one doesn't influence the other? You have to ask questions like, OK, if there's something like this land transaction with Neil Gorsuch, how do you make sure that an outside body reviews it to make sure that the transaction is at arm's length, that the transaction was at fair market value and that the justice wasn't in some way enriched by the, whatever the transaction was? So, you know, it, it's going to have multiple pieces to it. But again, the biggest crisis right now is that you have a justice accepting all of these lavish gifts from a billionaire. And whatever the rules say, that can't possibly be allowed. Well, I want to thank you, Ian Milheiser, for joining us, senior correspondent at Vox, author of the book The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. And a correction, it's not Dianne Feinstein, who's chair of the Judiciary Committee. It is Dick Durbin. Coming up, we look at the growing debate in Washington over raising the debt ceiling. Stay with us. Words, words, words in my old Bible. How much truth Words, words, words by John Wesley Harding in the Minus Five. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to look at the fight over raising the debt ceiling. On Monday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned the United States could default on its debts as early as June 1st unless the Biden administration and Congress reach a deal. Last week, House Republicans approved raising the debt limit, but only in exchange for sweeping spending cuts to numerous programs, including student debt relief, food assistance, Medicaid, and renewable energy. House Democrats are now attempting to force a full House vote on raising the debt ceiling without imposing the cuts, but the move will only succeed with the support of five Republicans. Meanwhile, the very constitutionality of the debt ceiling is coming into question. As some legal scholars point out, the 14th Amendment mandates that all the government's financial obligations be met, regardless of whether Congress authorizes lifting the debt ceiling. To talk about the debt ceiling and other economic issues, we're joined by James K. Galbraith, professor at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs, University of Texas at Austin. He's a former executive director of the Joint Economic Committee in the U.S. Congress. His 
His piece for the nation about this is headlined, The Debt Ceiling Explained. Once more, with feeling. Professor Galbraith, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Why don't you lay out what this whole debate is about and the dangers involved? Well, uh, the debate is about the future of the United States economy. And the chief danger uh, is that the, uh, a program that in exchange for extending the debt ceiling, which has always happened in the past, uh, that the Congress will enact and the president will approve, sign off on a program of swinging spending, spending cuts that will be very bad for people who are dependent on the programs uh, that are, will be affected, mainly poor people, but also people who are affected. Uh, depend on federal functions in all kinds of areas, uh, and secondly, for the economy as a whole, because the spending flows from the federal uh, federal government are fundamental to the functioning of the economy. Uh, so that's where the, that's where the fundamental danger is. The debt ceiling uh, is a uh, to take a phrase from the current television situation, it's a rerun. It's a it's a show we've been through many times before, uh, and uh, there's. I mean, it could conceivably not be resolved, but it's very hard to believe that it would take long to resolve it if they went over the deadline. So talk about the Republican threats and the linking of the lifting of the debt ceiling uh, with the cuts to um, social spending and safety net programs. Yes, that is uh, that is the direction that we are moving in is to have a I, I don't think we will. Get, I think the president's. Uh, laid out a very clear red line that he would not uh, support or sign a uh, an extension of the debt ceiling that was explicitly linked uh, to those cuts. But that doesn't mean that the administration won't agree to those cuts uh, as a separate uh, political bargain uh, when as the debt ceiling is extended. And that's where the danger to the economy lies, the main danger in my view. I want to turn to President Donald Trump speaking in 2019. I can't imagine anybody ever even thinking of using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge. Uh, when I first came into office, I asked about the debt ceiling, and I understand debt ceilings, and I certainly understand the, uh, the, the highest rated credit ever in history and a debt ceiling. And I said, I remember to Senator Schumer and to Nancy Pelosi, would anybody ever use that to negotiate with? They said, absolutely not. That's a sacred element of our country. They can't use the debt ceiling to negotiate. So, Professor Galbraith, can you respond to what Trump said then and also the um, through line from Trump to the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy? Well, you've put me in an uncomfortable position of associating myself with President Trump, but I didn't see any, hear anything in what he just said uh, to object to. But what is the position that they are all taking now? Well, it's clearly uh, clearly they would amend uh, what President Trump said to to, uh, to say that the, it applies only when there's a president of their own party. And when the president is from a different party, then they adopt a different strategy. So talk about the social programs that we're talking about here and why this is such a danger to Americans. 
Well, it's a danger to people who depend upon food assistance, who depend on Medicaid, who depend upon anything that's being threatened uh, in this so far not fully specified program of spending cuts. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the economy itself is in very fragile condition. Uh, and uh, it, uh, if you go into an election year uh, on a program of austerity and you're already hovering on the brink of, the, of a recession or perhaps moving into one, you're going to compound that problem. Now, it's, I think, pretty easy to see if you are a strategist for the Republican Party that this is a winning strategy. The president is a Democrat. The Senate is in Democratic hands. Uh, and the, uh, so far as uh, the voters are concerned, they react when the economy turns uh, moves turns to uh, toward recession when unemployment starts going up. So you have a lot of forces moving in that direction. Then this simply adds another one uh, to that uh, to that uh, situation. Professor Galbraith, can you talk about the failure of the banks from SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, to Signature, and now Chase Morgan buying up most of um, First Republic? Well, we are seeing two things happening. One, one of them is uh, the consequence. Both of them are the consequence of of the policy of raising interest rates, uh, which has been moved very rapidly over the last year from uh, very low interest rates to now above five percent on the very short term end of the spectrum. Uh, one of uh, one of them is that the banks, which were uh, exposed in one way or another because they had deposits that were uh, largely in large large quantities not insured by the not fully insured by the federal deposit insurance corporation uh, have seen at uh, deposit outflows uh, they've seen a fall in the value of portfolios that were uh, heavily invested in long-term government bonds which lose value in that situation this is a consequence of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy and it's affecting a large swath of the of the banking uh, system in the United States so that's one thing is you have a something which uh, could could develop into a fairly widespread set of banking problems. Uh, and the second is that the consequence of this is the increasing concentration of the banking sector. You see the First Republic was taken over by J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, we're, we're seeing effectively consolidation of the banking sector in the hands of the largest and most powerful banks. And what's the danger of that? The danger of that is the danger of uh, concentrated corporate power, uh, particularly in the hands of a, of a handful of bankers. I mean, after all, it was a, only a little more than a century ago that J.P. Morgan uh, himself had uh, you know, a very high degree of control over the financial system of the country. We're now moving back toward a system in which the bank that bears his name is in practically similar position. Um, Professor Galbraith, you recently wrote a working paper titled The Gift of Sanctions, an Analysis of Assessments of the Russian Economy 2022 to 2023. Can you talk about the impact of U.S. sanctions against Russia following its invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, set of issues because the, uh, there is, I think, very general agreement uh, amongst the analysts in the West, and also a certain number of them who are uh, writing inside, from inside Russia itself, uh, these sanctions did have a very, very substantial impact. Uh, the question is, what was the nature of that impact? And the, the Western analysts, the ones that I, I, I 
read and assessed, uh, argued that the effect was effectively was to destroy the Russian economy, was to render it irrelevant. It was to uh, that the Russian economy was imploding. Well, it is true that in the first part of 2022, uh, the uh, uh, there were substantial, there were very major impacts on production of automobiles, appliances, all kinds of things in, in, in Russia. The question is whether the Russian economy had the capacity to adapt. And the evidence is at this stage that it's adapting uh, quite well uh, to the sanctions. And that, in fact, uh, what the sanctions did was to open up for Russian companies essentially to take the place of the Western ones that previously held dominant positions inside the Russian economy. And that process is underway. So it, it would appear uh, in some respects that the sanctions have, have imposed policies on Russia which are increasing the independence uh, of, the, of, of, of the Russian economy from the West, uh, opening up, as I say, profit opportunities for Russian businesses. Uh, and generally speaking, uh, doing things which Russia could never have done on its own. Uh, they also uh, fostered a, uh, uh, the creation of an alternative payment system, uh, uh, working on Russia's, the financing of Russian Russia's international trade independently of the of the Western banking system and of the dollar reserve. So, a, in some sense, a zone is being created, which is uh, which would not have happened without the sanctions, been facilitated by the sanctions. So, what do you think should happen now? I'm sorry, I lost the audio. So, here. what do you think should happen yeah. now? Uh, well, uh, the problem here is uh, the way in which Western uh, economic analysts approach these questions, the kinds of tools they bring to bear. Uh, they have the facts, I think. They, uh, they apply an analytical framework which leads to the wrong conclusions. So what should happen, first of all, foremost, which is necessary in a number of areas, is to change the way we, we, we think about these questions, uh, to re-examine our own uh, assumptions our own theoretical frameworks. That's first and foremost what we should do. Well, James Galbraith, I want to thank you so much for being with us, professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs, University of Texas at Austin, former executive director of the Joint Economic Committee in the U.S. Congress. We will link to the piece you wrote, The Debt Ceiling Explained, once more with feeling. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, the mass shooting in Texas— Authorities have caught the man accused of using the AR-15 to shoot dead five people. The Texas governor, Greg Abbott, tweeted that the victims were illegal immigrants. Stay with us.
Never let you go. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Texas, where a tip to the FBI led police to the man suspected of shooting to death five people. Francisco Oropeso was arrested Tuesday outside of Houston in a town called Cut and Shoot, inside a closet under some laundry hiding. Oropesa shot his neighbors after being asked to stop firing his rifle while a one-month-old baby was trying to sleep inside. Police say he shot the victims with his AR-15 semi-automatic rifle execution style after one of the survivors, Wilson Garcia, asked him to stop firing rounds in his yard as the loud noise was keeping Garcia's Garcia's baby awake. Police say the victims were all from Honduras. The gunman was born in Mexico. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott is facing backlash after he described the victims of the mass shooting as, quote, five illegal immigrants. On Monday, a spokesperson for Abbott walked back. Part of his comments said the governor regretted if his remarks detracted from finding the shooter. This is San Jacinto Sheriff Greg Capers speaking earlier. My heart is with this eight-year-old little boy. I don't, I don't care if he was here legally. I don't care if he was here illegally. He was in my county. Five people died in my county, and that is where my heart is. When the governor, Abbott, tried to walk back his comments, uh, he tried to take— uh, to respond to the criticism of saying it was five dead illegal immigrants by saying he then thought that maybe one of them might have been legal. This comes as President Biden sending 1,500 troops to the U.S.-Mexico border ahead of next week's end of Title 42, which he and Trump used to block most access to asylum seekers. The troops will join 2,500 National Guardsmen who are already there to work with Border Patrol. For more, we're joined in San Antonio by Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, whose district includes Uvalde, the site of the school massacre less than a year ago, when 19 children and two teachers were killed also with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. He was just at the state capitol in Austin yesterday to join the Uvalde families who are demanding a vote on gun safety legislation. Senator, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Um, Why don't you start off by responding to Governor Abbott's response to the murder of the five people, including a nine-year-old boy, talking about the dead, quote, illegal immigrants? Well, thank you, Amy. First off, I mean, it's very clear here that Greg Abbott has just reached an all-new low I mean, they were just people. They were they were human beings, and he refuses to. At every step along the way in his policy, his goal is to dehumanize people, dehumanize Latin Americans, dehumanize Hispanics, and that's what he's done for the last several years. Uh, certainly, the last few days was a culmination of all of that hatred that he spews, and it's part of why we're broken as a nation. We just certainly need to come back together and understand that we're all in this together. I think that sheriff, Sheriff Capers, you know, said it best. He didn't think he didn't see color. He saw five people that lost their lives, including a little boy. 
Uh, in a previous interview, he mentioned how tragically and, and, and what damage the, the bullets from the AR-15 did to their bodies. Those are the same images that I've seen in the body cam footage in Uvalde. People need to understand what what's really going on in this nation, and we need to fix it. Yesterday in the state legislature, can you talk about what the legislature was doing with setting up memorials for the people dead in Uvalde as the parents were asking for what they considered a much more important memorial, which would be to regulate guns? Well, Amy, as you know, they had resolutions yesterday. The anniversary is coming up on the 24th of May. We are in a situation now where, unfortunately, nothing has been undone in the Texas Senate. We'll have our own resolution on the 24th, but that's not what the families want. Uh, the families want to be able to have legislation heard that's going to affect change, and that's extreme risk protective orders. That's raising an age limit. That's closing the gun show loophole, creating universal background checks. Those are the basic issues that we need to address in this space and we're just not. We're not as a as a nation. We're certainly not as a state in Texas. That's truly what the families want. They're tired of thoughts and prayers. They want their children's lives to have not been lost in vain. Can you talk about the state of gun safety laws in Texas, where you have one after another after another mass shooting? You've been having some Twitter wars with fellow legislators as they talk about the problem being immigration um, and sending and, you know, shutting down the border. And it looks like Biden will we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll be sending the military to the border. Uh, but your responses saying this isn't about immigration, it's about guns. Uh, no, certainly, Amy. I'll tell you that, you know, I, I I hate the fact that I'm having to have these discussions on Twitter with folks on the other side. I'd rather have the discussions on the Senate floor. Um, but the fact is, that's part and parcel of the problem. I mean, here we had the Republican Party leader in, in, in Austin, as well as the governor and others say, this is an immigration issue. This is a, a this is we have lax uh, policies at the border, he claims. And this is why this happened. No, this happened because an undocumented person was able to get a hold of an AR-15. How did that happen? Uh, the facts are that Republican policies across this country have led to a very loose gun policy that allows just about anybody and certainly in Texas to go find a weapon like an AR-15 with impunity. You could go to a gun show, and you don't need to even so much as show an identification if you're buying from an unlicensed dealer. That happens every Saturday, every Sunday in Texas at gun shows across this state. How is it that we are allowing people to access this type of weaponry with zero regulation? That all has happened in Texas under a 30-year regime that has done nothing more than to amplify and expand access to militarized weaponry. How is that human? How is that humane? How is that even—how does that make even any sense at all? These people, all they've done is create chaos, and now they have to live with it, and so they have, they're deflecting in other areas. 
You have um, Republicans in Texas, led by Abbott, talking about arming more people, um, which certainly <coughs> satisfies the NRA. But look at what happened in Uvalde. How many— what was it? 376 law enforcement officers de descended on the school. Talk about heavily armed and militarized. And they wouldn't move in on this shooter. I mean, what is the latest on the investigation into that and the role of Greg Abbott in defending what took place? For more than an hour, these children, wise, terrified children, called the police. No, you're right, Amy. I mean, the fact is that, you know, Greg Abbott has called for zero accountability of his top cop, Steve McCraw. There has been zero transparency. The public knows very little as to what went on. Um, you know, I've seen it all. I've seen all of the body cam footage. I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, the images are horrible. And the statements from the police are just as horrible. The statements that they've made on camera philosophizing about how this happens every day in America, rather than be in the moment doing their jobs. Uh, you know, the, 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 their post statements, which suggest their post incident statements, would suggest that they were afraid of the AR 15. Um, there has been zero accountability, zero willingness to recognize the failure that happened. 376 supposed good guys with cops stood around while kids died in fear of their lives. The kids were braver than the police that day. Uh, this will be forever the collective shame of Texas. Um, and yet we have people in power in Texas that have done absolutely nothing to fix any element of what went on. Nothing on gun safety solutions, nothing on victims' compensation funds, nothing on training accountability, nothing on accepting the truth of what occurred on May 24th, which was the worst law enforcement failure to a police shooting in our nation's history. And then you have what just happened with the killing of five people, um, including the nine-year-old boy, the unbelievable bravery of the women inside the home who use their bodies to protect children underneath them, and they both died, um, the women, but they did successfully protect the children. Um, the dad, Wilson Garcia— said they called the police at least five times as this man next door, someone they knew, uh, continued to shoot off this AR-15 in the yard. I mean, maybe that's where response to the Latinx community should be raised? I mean, certainly, you know, the, the police didn't think that this was a significant event. Um, take it back to Uvalde. They didn't think that a young man going into the same gun shop for three days buying two AR-15s, buying hundreds of rounds of ammunition. No one thought that was a significant event to call the police. There is an absolute, you know, what I call an irreverence when it comes to, you know, Hispanic communities in Texas, and Uvalde was certainly one of those. Um, at the end of the day, you know, what we saw in Uvalde and all of that failure, and even leading up to the event, which was the a community asking for uh, to fix the radios, which the radios didn't work on that day. Certainly that neglect, there is some racism in neglect. There is people that are in power deciding who gets what. Um, the situation up in San, in San Jacinto County, you had people 
call the police and the police not respond to something that I think they felt was just uh, an everyday occurrence in rural Texas, which is people shooting their guns off. I want to go to Wilson Garcia describing what happened. Yes, I was the one that went there because my child, when he shot, my child began to cry. He's a month and a half. My wife came out and asked me, do you think you can tell the neighbor if he can shoot a little bit further from where we are? That is the back of his house. I went there and in fact, there were three of us who went to talk to him. We weren't disrespectful. We asked him if he could do us a favor and shoot a bit further away because my one and a half month year old child was crying. He answered me that he was on his property and he could do whatever he wanted. I told him, okay, fine, do it. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to call the police and you can deal with them. We went back inside and my wife was talking to the police. In fact, she talked to them five times because the man was threatening more intensely. One of the people who was killed saw my wife. She was agonizing on the ground and she told me to jump out the window because my children were already without their mother and one of us would have to be left alive to take care of them. And she was the one who helped me to throw myself out the window, but she failed to do so for herself. She died. Wilson Garcia, his wife, Sonia Argentina Guzman, and his nine-year-old son, Daniel Enrique Lasso, were among those killed. Senator Roland Gutierrez, you have, what, introduced something like 50 gun safety bills into the state legislature? The sense of the people of Texas—I mean, even the membership of the NRA is against the leadership. What about the population of Texas? You know, 76 percent of Republicans want common-sense gun safety solutions. I introduced 22 bills, uh, all told 50 uh, amongst all Democrats and a few spatterings of Republican bills that were really not very meaningful uh, in, in their regard, in their, in their context. Uh, that said, you know, the, uh, you know, people in Texas are asking for common sense gun safety solutions. 76% of Republicans want extreme risk protective orders. They want to close the gun show loophole and they want to raise the age limit. And yet Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick, our lieutenant governor and the speaker of the House, Dade Phelan, have no interest in doing what's right for Texas, doing what's humane doing what every other state, including governors like Bill Lee in Tennessee, have done, uh, including what Rick Scott did after Parkland. We're in crisis, and the leaders in Texas are doing absolutely nothing to prevent the leading cause of death amongst children in America. State Senator Gutierrez, I wanted to end by asking you about President Biden's announcement yesterday that he's sending 1,500 more troops to the U.S.-Mexico border ahead of next week's end of the Title 42 pandemic policy, which he and Trump used to block most access to asylum seekers. Your response, I mean, he's gotten pushback not only uh, from Republicans knee-jerk criticizing him, but from Democrats as well. You know, I support the president. You know, Title Eight works. Title 42 doesn't. The fact is, what Title 42 is, it, it, it created a situation where immigrants were finding the side door, crossing the river, rather than going and asking for asylum in a proper way. Um, at the end of the day, we certainly have an immigration problem that needs to be fixed in Washington. Uh, we have 
13 million undocumenteds that have been here for almost 30 years. That needs to be addressed. We have a million dreamers. We've got to fix that situation. And are you our farmers, our ranchers, our construction are companies, our restaurants about- across the United States are in a labor shortage. We need to fix that with some of these arriving immigrants. We have uh, 10 seconds, but uh, are you concerned about uh, increased militarization of the border and what that could mean? You know, certainly it's it's always a concern, but I also represent a great expanse of the border. I also understand that my communities want to have a little bit more policing there. I'd rather have the federal government than DPS troopers that are doing an ineffective job. Uh, National Guardsmen, nine of which have committed suicide, one of them which drowned in a river because Greg Abbott didn't give him the resources necessary uh, to, to save himself. And so I'd I rather do a better you job. There, but I thank you government. for being with us, State Senator Roland yes. Gutierrez. I'm Amy Goodman.